morning. Well, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to that passage, the book of John 1, 14 through 18. I'm going to swallow my gum because I forgot to spit it out. <laughs> John chapter 1, 14 through 18. And as you turn there, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you looked at someone that you've known for a fairly long time and you've started to remember what it was about that person that made you fond of them in the first place? I'm sure many married couples do this as they, they look at each other. You know, I mean, life goes on and they, they don't get as much quality time, but they start to take moments now and maybe they go on a, a long vacation to reconnect. They spend longer amounts of time together engaging in conversation day in and day out. All of the distractions of life are kind of put by the wayside for a moment so that they can just enjoy one another's company. And in the process of doing this, they begin to look at one another and remember what it was about the other person that actually made them fall in love in the first place. It's almost like they're recovering from a kind of relational Alzheimer's. Certain quirks and characteristics about the other spouse maybe come back to the surface, and now it's not that there's a new love for the other person. It's that an old love has just been renewed. It's been remembered. It's been reignited. And this kind of experience doesn't just have to happen in a marriage. It could even happen in a friendship. My wife and I just had uh, college friends visit us last weekend. They stayed with us, uh, uh, husband and wife and their two kids. And Brandon, the husband, was my roommate my junior year at Cedarville, and uh, we became incredibly close. He was my best man in my wedding. But honestly, over this past year in particular, we haven't done a great job about staying in touch there hasn't been anything more than maybe the occasional text, maybe one FaceTime session. We've kind of lost that connection. But over this last weekend, Brandon and I were able to spend a lot of time together and catch up with what's been happening in each other's lives. Memories started to come back. Old stories came up in our conversation. And I was reminded of why Brandon's friendship was so special to me in the first place. I felt like our relationship had kind of been revitalized after spending just a couple of days together. Because in that short amount of time this past weekend, I remembered and saw in Brandon all the characteristics that our friendship had been built on. Well, my hope this morning and my goal is that as we read this passage, John 1, 14 through 18 together, and we consider what it has to say, we would come in contact with the character of Jesus Christ again and have a renewed relationship with him because of it. I have two hopes for us today, two wishes. First, that for the Christian, we would become reacquainted with Christ and remember what it is about him that made us commit our lives to him in the first place. And if you are not a Christian this morning, my hope is very much the same, not that you would remember who Jesus is, but that this morning you would now discover who Jesus is. That as we engage with the book of John this morning, the glory of Jesus Christ would be revealed to you and you would come to believe in him. So that's my first hope. The second hope is that we would not just remember who Christ is, but 
we would then believe fully that because of who Christ is, he is worthy of our affections, that we would fall in love with Jesus again. And so let's pray for that right now. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us in the scriptures. I pray that we would just be amazed at what we learn about you today, and that because of it, we would fall more in love with you, that we would believe you are worthy of our affections this morning. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Well, before we dive into verses 14 through 18, let's just quickly review what we've discussed up until now in the book of John. The first 18 verses of John are often referred to as the book's prologue, and as Chris pointed out in the first week of our sermon series, John is not just giving kind of random doctrinal theological talking points. In this prologue, he's presenting specific ideas and concepts that he's going to be talking about for the remainder of the book. He's going to be building on them for the next 20 chapters ahead. And he's doing all of this for the purpose of making you and I believe that Jesus is the Son of God through whom we can receive eternal life. So it makes sense then that the book of John actually begins by confirming the authority of Jesus and reminding his readers that Jesus is the eternal word, one with God and God himself. John goes on to introduce John the Baptist as the one who testifies on behalf of Jesus. And then the idea of light is introduced as John the Baptist bears witness to it. We talked about this idea last week, and Chris Chris reminded us that we can either accept or reject that light that is found exclusively through Jesus. And now this leads us to our passage this morning, verses 14 through 18 where the prologue of John's gospel culminates. It reaches a pinnacle at this moment. Everything that John has been saying is leading up to this one thing. Christ is not only God the Word. He's not only God the Light. He is God incarnate, the Word made flesh. The next 20 chapters of John are going to be actually spent explaining what that actually looks like practically. What does it look like for God to actually come in the flesh? But before he gets there, John reminds us of four important truths that we're going to think on this morning. Here they are. Jesus is God and man. Jesus is the meeting place for sinners. Jesus is the glory of God. And Jesus is full of grace and truth. So let's start with the first of these four truths. Jesus is God and man. This is the very first point that John makes in this passage. He says, and the word became flesh. And if you've been following with us over the past few weeks, you know that this is not the first time John has used this kind of language to describe Jesus. In John 1.1, the apostle is emphasizing the authority of the word. He he says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word was God. This is supposed to kind of take us back to the first words, not just of John, but the first words of the entire Bible, when it says that God 
was in the beginning creating the world. This is why at the top of the list in our core values is the preeminence of Jesus. We believe that he is superior to us. He is greater than us. He has authority over us because he is God eternal, the creator of all things. But now in verse 14 of chapter one, John starts to emphasize something different. He, he changes his perspective on this idea of the word. Yes, Christ is the authoritative divine word. But John brings a greater level of complexity to this idea by adding another layer to his person. Jesus is not only God, he is God and man, the word made flesh. By using this combination of words that Jesus is the word who became flesh, John is, is kind of marrying these two different but equally important realities, that Christ is, on one hand, transcendent. He is God above us. And yet, on the other hand, Christ is imminent. He is God with us. Now, here we learn something that's very important about the distinction between who God is and what he says. The important thing to remember is that there actually is no distinction. God identifies himself according to his word. So much so that in describing the incarnation, John says that the word, Jesus Christ, became the person, Jesus Christ. You might have heard someone say before that we need to stop making Christianity so much about the Bible and start making it more about Jesus. But Jesus doesn't make that kind of distinction in the way that he reveals himself to us. Just this last week, I was watching a video of a, a pastor who's a mega church in Atlanta, Georgia. And in that video, he, he starts talking about why we need to stop making comments in the church like the Bible says this or the, or the Bible says so. We need to do this because the Bible says so. He says that's, that's not a good enough reason for us to listen to what someone has to say. And so in the case of Genesis, for example, considering whether it's, it's a mythical account of creation or whether it's a literal account of creation, he says, I don't believe that Genesis is a literal account because the Bible says so. I believe Genesis is a literal account of creation because Jesus says so. In other words, this pastor is disconnecting the authority of God's word from the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have anything inherently against this particular pastor. I don't think that we need to start signing a petition and, uh, you know, excommunicating him from Christianity and, and burning everything that he's ever said or written or done. But we do need to understand that he is wrong about his understanding of the way that the word and the person of Christ relate to one another. Who Christ is can be seen in both his personhood and the word. The two should never be pitted against one another. Now, practically speaking, why is this so important for us to understand? Why should we care that, that God, the Word, became flesh? We should think this is important because it should revolutionize the way that we understand and look at the Bible. It should revolutionize the way that we read the Bible. Too often, we, we come before the Word of God because we know that we should. We have to. We're called to do that. 
Or other times we come before the word of God because we just know that there's so many interesting pieces of information in the word of God. And I understand that. I'm, I'm taking seminary classes right now and there's days and days and days of me just studying the Bible. And there are moments in, the, in those times where I find just fascinating things. I mean, it's just an interesting book. An atheist could read the Bible and say, there are some fascinating pieces of information in this book. But our ultimate motivation for reading the Bible, for engaging with the word of God, should not be out of obligation or fascination. Our motivation for reading the Bible should be that in it, we are actually able to encounter Jesus. And this is the amazing thing about Jesus revealing himself in both word and flesh. He doesn't leave himself to mystical, subjective experiences that that you and I might have. We don't have to go searching the universe, waiting for some spiritual encounter before we find Jesus because he's revealed himself sufficiently within the boundaries of scripture so that every person can come to know him. You see, in the Bible, we don't just find morals and principles and, and bits of information. Through it, we experience the very person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. Well, John, John goes on to tell us that not only did God become flesh, but even more, he dwelt among us. This word dwelt literally means that Jesus pitched his tent or his tabernacle with humanity. It takes our minds back to the Old Testament when when God told the nation of Israel, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That's Exodus 25.8. And what was the function of this sanctuary? Well, it had two purposes for the nation of Israel. The, The first purpose was that the tabernacle became the place where God's presence resided. In fact, as as Israel moved from Egypt to the promised land, they would actually set up this tabernacle, which was just an intricate tent, because wherever they were, they wanted to make sure that they had the presence of God with them, which is a little ironic, because in my childhood, when I watched my father set up a tent, I felt like the presence of God got further away from us, okay? There's a lot of frustration in those moments. And so the tabernacle served as the place where God's presence resided. That was the first purpose. The second purpose of the tabernacle was to be a place where the people of Israel could become right with God. Because the tabernacle housed God's presence, it became a place where forgiveness of sin could then be received from God through the sacrifices and rituals of the priesthood. And that's the kind of imagery that John is trying to get into our minds then when he tells us that God has dwelt among us. He has tabernacled among us. No longer is, God, uh, is God's presence something that's found in a tent that can be set up and torn down. Now the presence of God has been established through the physical existence of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the presence of God. So now what? What significance does this have for us that that Jesus has actually dwelt among us? Well, I'd argue there are three practical applications for us this morning. Three implications. The first implication has to do with our salvation. 
The Bible tells us that humanity has put itself in a very awkward situation. We have sinned against a holy, righteous God, which means that any restitution that happens between the two of us should ultimately come from us. We are the ones that have sinned. We are the ones that have broken the relationship. We owe God payment for our sins. But at the same time, because of our sin, we're unable to actually get salvation on our own. We cannot gain the, the favor of God in our own power. The debt is too great for us to pay. Only God is able to save us. What's needed then for the forgiveness of sin is a payment which comes from God, has his power, and yet is in the form of human flesh. In other words, Jesus is the only possible solution to the universal problem of sin. Just like Israel and the tabernacle, Jesus now becomes the place where sinners are made right with God, the place where a sacrifice is made and forgiveness is offered. The second implication of Jesus dwelling with us has to do with identification. When Jesus came to the earth, he didn't minister from a, different, from a distance. He identified himself with us. He dwelled with us. He shared in our experiences as human beings, even our pain and our suffering. And I was, as I was thinking about this concept this week, that, that God identifies with us, I started to think about the difference that the word with can make, the different meanings that that word can have. Imagine for a moment that you have been unexpectedly diagnosed with an incredibly deadly disease. The doctor comes in and gives you your diagnosis and he said, if you want any chance of living at all, we need to begin treatment immediately, right now. There is no waiting. You know that it's going to be a long and it's going to be a painful process. But you're surrounded by your family and your friends in that moment and, and they just kind of stop and say, hey, we just want you to know. We are with you through this process. Now I'm sure as you heard those words spoken to you, I'm sure you'd be very encouraged. You'd even feel uplifted. You'd know that those people love you greatly. But now imagine that there's a person in the bed next to you who's been diagnosed with the exact same illness. They are going to go through the exact same treatments as you. And they look at you now and they say, hey, I am with you. This person isn't just offering emotional support. They're not just trying to be a morale booster. They understand your fears. They understand your pain because they have experienced it themselves. They share in your suffering. They identify with you. There'd be a deeper level of intimacy between the two of you, wouldn't there be? There'd be a special bond between the two of you because the experiences that you're about to share in and will continue to share in are going to pull you closer and closer together. This is the kind of relationship that we have with Christ. Jesus understands what it means to be broken. Jesus understands what it means to be weak and hungry. He has felt the sting of death, and he is with us. He identifies with us. So Jesus dwelling among us has 
implications with salvation, identification, and finally with adoration. Only in Christianity do we see God actually coming down to earth in order to dwell with those who are lesser than him. But Jesus, King Jesus, stepped down from his throne in heaven in order to take on the burden of human flesh and the payment of human sin. What then should be our response if not adoration? There should be nothing in our lives that would somehow prevent or delay us from absolute worship of Jesus Christ. There is no thing and no one who has done what Jesus has done for us. He is completely and exclusively worthy of our adoration because he is the word made flesh and for our sake, he has dwelt among us. Well, not only is Jesus both God and man, not only is Jesus the meeting place for sinners, Jesus is also the glory of God. Read with me in the second half of John 1.14, it says, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now, before we get too far into this part, it might be best for us to have a definition of God's glory. We can think of God's glory simply this way. It is the summation of who God is. Now, with that in mind, it's important that we understand that Jesus, according to John 1.14, the way that it's worded, is more than just a representation of God's glory. If Jesus is just a representation of God's glory, then there is not very much special about John 1.14. Because we have, throughout the entire Old Testament, many different representations of God's glory. For example, God's glory is represented by fire on the Mount of Sinai when Moses receives instructions for building the tabernacle. You can see that in Exodus 24, 17. Another example is found later on in Exodus 40 when the tabernacle is actually completed and a cloud falls down on the tabernacle. It represents the glory of God that is now filling the space of the tent. It's not that these symbols were the glory of God. The people of Israel aren't actually seeing this fire and these, and these clouds and, and literally seeing the glory of God before them. These things are just representations of God's glory. They are symbols showing that God's glory is present. But when Jesus comes, something much greater happens than what has ever happened in the Old Testament. John says that in Christ, we have seen God's glory. In other words, Jesus isn't just another representation of God's glory. Jesus is God's glory. And we should be amazed by this because of what John says in verse 18. No one, he says, has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has ever seen God. Think back to Exodus 33, 18, where, where Moses asks God to see his glory. God's response is fairly straightforward. He says, you can't see my glory. If you see my glory, you will die. But something miraculous happens in the coming of Christ. In the incarnation, what was invisible is now made visible. 
What couldn't be known about God is now actually made known. And I was contemplating this idea this week, and I thought back to my, my time in college, and I remember it was kind of this trend to, uh, for Christians to say, you, just, you need to be Jesus to those around you. You need to be Jesus. It was kind of a, a call of commissioning. Go and be Jesus. Now, there's, there's only one problem with that perspective. You cannot be Jesus. I love you. I care about you. You cannot embody the glory of God. That is the reality. Our responsibility as Christians is not to be Jesus to people. It is to point people to Jesus. John the Baptist understood that distinction when he says in John 1.15, the very next verse, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. There's a clear separation between who John is and who Christ is. This is what being a faithful witness to Christ looks like. It's recognizing that at my best, I can only be a window through which people begin to experience the glory of God. They begin to see and understand the glory of God. I cannot be Jesus. Only Jesus can be Jesus because only Jesus is the glory of God. And what kind of glory is this that God has shown through Jesus Christ? Well, John goes on to say it's a glory full of grace and truth. This is actually what makes the rest of the verse and even the rest of the passage good news. Just as easily it could have said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of judgment and righteousness. Jesus could have come as our judge and all of us would have been found guilty at a completely fair trial. And yet John tells us that Jesus did not come as a judge. He came full of grace and truth. In fact, John dedicates more than half the passage to this idea alone. In verse 14, he says that the glory of Christ is full of grace and truth. He goes on in verse 16 and says that from the fullness of God, we have received grace upon grace. And in verse 17, he says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So grace is clearly an important theme for John, so much so that he uses the word four times in just three verses. In fact, many people would take verse 16 to mean that God continually pours out his grace on us in such a way that it just continues to pile up like gifts around a Christmas tree. That God is so good to us, he just gives us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And that isn't necessarily untrue, but D.A. Carson explains here that actually a better translation of this particular verse is not grace upon grace, but grace instead of grace. That is the fullness of Christ has brought with it a new grace, which is superior to the old grace found in the law of Moses. Paul seems to agree with this idea when he says in Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of of the law 
for righteousness to everyone who believes. The writer of Hebrews makes a similar claim about Christ. He says, in speaking of a new covenant, he, that is Jesus, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In other words, the grace of Christ is superior to the grace found in the old covenant. It's not that the law didn't have grace. It's not that the law was without grace. It's not that the law was opposed to grace. But it's that the grace found in Jesus Christ is now a more complete grace. It is a better grace. It is a more full grace. This is why John makes a distinction in the next verse, verse 17, when he says that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses delivered the law to Israel. He gave the law. The law then could be separated from Moses. Moses was simply the messenger. The law was given. But with Jesus, Jesus actually is grace. Grace and truth came into being when Jesus came into being in his personhood. Grace and truth can't exist apart from Jesus because he is the embodiment of grace and truth. Jesus doesn't just deliver the good news. He is the good news. What is it that makes the glory of God so full of grace and truth then? Well, Jesus is going to explain in John 12 later on that the glory of God is going to, going to be displayed not through fireworks and trumpets, not through the singing of the hallelujah chorus, but it's going to be displayed through pain and death on a cross. God's wrath is going to be poured out on himself so that we can receive forgiveness and redemption. As John Piper says, Jesus took on flesh so that nails could be driven through it. The glory of God and the grace of God are bound together. They are inseparable. The cross most clearly radiates the glory of God because it was where the grace of God was most radically displayed and accomplished. Here's my concern. We've forgotten how amazing the grace of Jesus Christ is. And because of that, we have fallen out of love with him. We've become like the middle-aged couple who spent most of their life now together paying bills and raising children, earning an income, going through the mundane parts of life together. And when all of those distractions start to kind of fade away and they move on to new life stages, they're just kind of left with each other. And they can't seem to remember what it was that attracted them to the other person in the first place. They've lost touch. And as the weeks and months go by, they start to realize that they've lived around each other for a long time. But they haven't lived with one another. Friends, there are thousands of things a day that have the potential to pull our attention away from Jesus. But John is trying to tell us and convince us here in verses 14 through 18 that Jesus is worthy of our attention. 
Jesus is greater than the latest show on Netflix. He's greater than your job. He's greater than your spouse. He's greater than your singleness. He's greater than your bank account. He's greater than your children. And while we're on the topic of children, just briefly let me say, it is going to be twice as hard to convince your children that Jesus is worthy of their attention and their adoration when they see their parents making Jesus a priority on Sunday mornings and then for the rest of the week, there is a failure in the home to make Jesus the absolute center of their minds and their affections. I understand that parenting is incredibly difficult. You have to be a chauffeur, a professional chef, a disciplinarian, an educator, a tutor, a coach, sometimes all of those things on just one single day. And all of those are good things. All of those are great things. And your children need you to be those things. But more than anything, your children need you to be a lover of Jesus, And it's not just true with parents and children. You, Christian, your family needs you to be a lover of Jesus. Your neighbors need you to be a lover of Jesus. Your church needs you to be a lover of Jesus. Do not become numb to the miraculous nature of who Jesus is He is God and man, the meeting place of sinners, the glory of God, full of grace and truth, and he is worthy of our affections. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Lord, thank you for how you've revealed yourself to us through Jesus. Help us not just to Become numb to that reality. Help us not to take that for granted, Lord. Help us to be amazed by who Jesus is. And because of who Jesus is, help us to believe that he is worthy of our affections. He is worthy of our attention. It's in your son's name that I pray, amen.